Hey, everybody, it's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And, um, well, it would be very hard to uh, go on the air today um, uh, without talking a little bit about the debates um, yesterday. Uh, so, I mean, we all, um, I, I'm sure not everybody was glued to the screen. In fact, I talked to some people who said they just could not possibly sit through it. But I did. I sat through the whole thing. And then I also um, listened to some of the analysis, just enough to sort of check my own impressions and and feel uh, a little bit in sync with them. Um, but I have somebody who's a little bit more expert than me, despite my sort of um, uh, old uh, time involvement with um, uh, political work uh, in the past. Um, Dr. Clark, um, Gary Clark, who is a professor of political science at Dillard and also heads up the um, Center for Law and Public Interest. Um, Gary, are you there? Yes, yes. Good morning, my friend. And I understand that you are <clears throat> actually some distance from us up in Washington. I'll, I'll bet Washington was a buzz over the uh, over the debate. Uh, absolutely. This is uh, the Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Weekend, and this is a time where people who are, in particular, black people who are interested in national politics and their own local politics, like to come and meet. And this is their 45th uh, conference. So, uh, yeah, so that was very interesting timing. So I'm, I'm curious, um, of course, I just want to talk with you in general about your impressions of the debate and uh, share with you some of my thoughts. And I really hope some of our listeners will call in at 2609265 and uh, add their thoughts um, because it, it definitely was very interesting from the perspective that it was long. Oh, my gosh, it really went on forever. But I really appreciated the opportunity to get to know um, the candidates a little bit better. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's a candidate in the group that um, I would uh, choose over others, but I, I definitely found it really interesting. A lot of smart people, I thought, up on that dais, even if they were not um, politically sharpen if I didn't necessarily agree with some of their positions. But um, that's that's my biggest takeaway is that I thought that you had a lot of people up there who had some brain power and uh, were using it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you may not necessarily agree with their positions, but you get a chance to get a sampling of everyone, uh, of, of, of 15 or so different individuals, to get a sampling of their thoughts and their political views. But what's important to recognize is that Everyone up there that was on this, uh, the dais last night uh, represented a particular constituency. And it wasn't just themselves. They were articulating the interests of a group. And, and so you can just see that even within the Republican Party itself, that there are huge divisions. There are many people who tend to think that the Republican Party uh, is monolithic and they all think there's one. But that is so far from the truth than, uh, than anyone can imagine. And the same thing holds true with the Democratic Party. Uh, there are divisions within the parties, and so that, that's very evident uh, in the debates and forums that they've had recently. I totally agree, and um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's degrees of separation, right? So there were some people who you really had to listen carefully to hear the differences, 
Um, and then other people who, uh, of course, were um, much more sort of hewing to their um, philosophy, and that was coming across more than um, uh, any sense of, of new thinking or deep thinking. I, I think the thing that bothered me most is that um, so many of the positions that I was hearing are positions that I feel are archaic, that they've been around for a long time. Again, as you said, they speak to certain constituencies, but um, I, I don't really see how um, they are truly solutions to the underlying issues that we're dealing with in this country, which really have to do with our economy, our education system, um, how we prepare people to be a part of the American dream. And I wasn't hearing a lot of that. I was I was hearing a great deal. I think um, I forget which candidate it was uh, who kept emphasizing that the most important thing that a president can do is make sure our country is safe. Okay, I can't disagree with that. But the sense on the, uh, that I was hearing from him is that um, if if we deal with our military might and our military position in the world, that this is somehow going to guarantee us. Uh, to to have the respect and the positioning of of safety in the world and and I don't agree with that I, I it 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 just seems to me that if we are not still a country that offers opportunity to anybody who can get in that classroom learn and come out of it prepared to deal with our changing our technology economy then um, it ain't gonna happen. Uh, you're so correct, and, uh, and and I think you're right on target in the sense that uh, there was no grand deal, no, no grand uh, strategy that, that you saw uh, in the debate and in the discussion. But each one, because they represented uh, a particular constituency, this almost can be viewed as like a one-trick pony. And you know what a one-trick uh, one pony is, a pony that can only do just one thing. And so uh, you, you didn't you, – you, you, that has not emerged yet. The candidate that has the, the grand scheme, the big scheme, is, uh, I know I come, of a certain, come from a certain vintage and recall, and we know that we, we like the grand, uh, the grand stream. Uh, we like the, the new, you know about the New Deal uh, or right. the Great Society right. or yeah. John F. Kennedy with the New Frontier. Well, uh, they're not putting out there uh, the, a grand scheme because they discovered that to some extent, uh, it's not necessary, uh, and, and that's what that part is. That's in the Republican Party. There are those who believe now that it's not necessary because it was easy to run on one on um, one issue alone. If you remember in the last election cycle, the one issue for all the national candidates uh, that ran for the U.S. U.S. Senate and and the Congress was Obamacare and defeat Obama. Uh, and so the issue then was just to define the enemy, and the enemy was Obama. And so now the issue begins to be not it's not Obama yet, and it's not Obamacare, but the issue now is that is for each one of the particular candidates to be able to get enough votes and correct enough votes within the party itself, and speak of the Republican Party, so that they can make it to the uh, become the nominee. Then you're going to begin to see perhaps uh, some grandiose thinking, and at least that's the hope from the American electorate and people like us. Yeah, and, and I, I, I agree with you that that's probably the strategy that's at work. Um, but, you know, actually, I was shocked to hear how many of them did uh, still talk about Obamacare. 
as if um, there has been absolutely no learning about um, how many people in America now have insurance that didn't have it before. And I'm sure that there are major issues with how it functions that need to be fixed. But the idea that you should, you know, throw it out altogether and start from scratch when it took so many years to just get to the point where you had some kind of a program out there that enabled people who don't have insurance through their jobs um, or don't have the income. I, I just don't get that. I, 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 that just seems to me, again, as you said, speaking to a constituency rather than really dealing with how are we going to solve, not solve, but grow and develop and reflect um, a dramatically changing economy. That I, I use that expression a lot because, you know, uh, anybody who is paying attention at all realizes that, you know, the, the industrial era in this country, I'm not going to say it's over because you never say never, say never right? And, and, and we may very well um, come back with all kinds of very sexy ideas for how to develop industry again, especially with all of these sort of micro strategies using 3D printers and what have you. Um, the, the world changes. Every time you think you're on a trend, that trend can change. So, but technology is at the heart of what's happening. And uh, if we're not educating our kids to deal with this technology, they're nowhere. And so you can't solve crime and, and you can't deal with our military position in the world without dealing with technology. Well, to some extent, that's why um, Donald Trump appears to be winning. And I say appears uh, because Donald Trump is the one candidate that's come in and he said, "Wait a minute! Uh, I'm just going—I'm going to give you a scheme, and, and my scheme is—is uh, is make America great again. But within that, it's so—it's so large, and it has actually he has not given us any policy in terms of how that is going to be accomplished. Now he's entered the debate uh, as a non-conventional candidate. And if he, in the 18th century, when America fought the war." Uh, for independence, you had the you had the, the red coats and Americans. Now Americans were fighting; they were fighting their war. Uh, the, the red coats were fighting; the British were fighting their war in the traditional style, lined up uh, in ranks, right. rank and file, rank right. and file. Yeah. But Americans used guerrilla warfare. Right. And that's Donald a very Trump interesting and in, good analogy. Yeah, Trump has come in into a group of traditional Republicans fighting a traditional style campaign. But he's using guerrilla warfare, and the guerrilla tactics are very effective. We all know that. You know, he's, he's attacked them all below the belt, behind the back, all kinds of ways. He's, he's, uh, he's indicated their vulnerability to everyone. Uh, statements that, you, that no one would ever say before, out loud. And so he's defined their vulnerabilities, and he's done it in the most in-your-face, direct manner. And so that is what has occurred today, is that by using those guerrilla tactics, and they're very effective tactics, and then using the the Make America Great Again, but not having a particular plan. And actually, the plan is not necessary until you have to produce a plan. And evidently, to date, it has not been deemed necessary for him to present it. So why present a plan for someone to pick it out and take it apart until you have to? Well, uh, yeah, I, I see the rationale behind that. But, of course, um, I, I do think that that only lasts so long before Absolutely. somebody really does have to kind of um, 
you know, uh, reveal what they're thinking. And um, but but it is interesting. I watched um, a news segment. I don't remember where I watch a lot of the political uh, shows. And um, this one woman was online waiting for his rally in Dallas. He had that huge rally in Dallas a couple of days ago. And um, uh, she she was like, you know, there early or in the morning or the night before, whatever, in order to make sure that she got in and got a seat. And um, the interviewer asked her, the news uh, reporter asked her, you know, how did she feel about some of the things that he was saying about uh, women or about um, Mexicans and so on? She said, well, I, I don't particularly agree with that. And, 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 and he said, but, but you're supporting him? She said, yeah. And, and it was like it didn't really – and she actually said this in almost these words. It really doesn't matter what he says. She just is on um, – She's on the train, just as you said, because she likes those guerrilla tactics. She likes, I think, what people perceive as um, an honest, some kind of honesty that is based on just saying what you think as opposed to what your political consultants and your PACs and your polls are telling you to say. Um, on the other hand, I don't hear anything from him. I hear nothing but totally redundant over and over and over again. I'm great. I built a big business. I'm going to make sure that the country is, is great too. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and at some point it, it should and will become redundant. And, and interesting enough, Donald Trump has done all of this, and his name is at the forefront uh, of every political discussion debate in America on both sides of the aisle. But what? But he's done all of this without spending any money on commercials. I know. It, it, you have <laughs> to say it's kind of a brilliant media strategy. Yes. But and so, and so that's the most amazing fact about that. So when he does begin to spend, and yet he's the one who can afford to spend it. But when he does begin to spend, to begin to try to shape American belief, and uh, it, it could it could very well resonate with society. So uh, the other thing that I noticed in the debate last night, however was the fact that the discussion amongst some of the other candidates um, really, I think, um, one of the reasons why he was a little bit quieter, the, the New York Times uh, on, on their front page today uh, said that it was a new Trump, he was being, he was using restraint, the say anything strategy was, was sort of reined in a little bit, so they were kind of saying that he had turned some kind of corner now that he was so far ahead and so forth. But what, what struck me was the extent to which some of the other candidates were so much more specific and so much more interesting in, in what they were putting forth that it seemed to almost circumvent him. I didn't think he was the star by far last night, even though it started out with kind of the same vibe that you had with the first debate where, you know, it was all about him. But pretty soon when you, you get into a two hour long or actually was it it was actually three hours long. I've never actually seen a political debate on television. It was three hours long. By the time you got through that whole process, a lot of people had put a lot of cards on the table. And to me, it, it totally d took away from his positioning as, you know, uh, just just get on my train. It's cool. I'm, I, I'm great. I made a lot of money. I'm going to make America great again. You know, Carly Fioroni, I, I, yes. I don't, I'm not pronouncing her last name right. Um I, I, she didn't appeal to me. She, she seemed kind of cold and, and um, 
I don't know, uh, very hard. But uh, she knew her facts. I mean, she was sort of the the reverse political. She was the uh, mirror of uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, who who always has her facts on the liberal side. And here's um, Carly, who's definitely on the very conservative side. She had her facts. She was she was putting out some some very specific information, and I, I don't know. I find that appealing. Well, I will say this: these candidates uh, on on both sides of the aisle, they're policy wonks. Uh, the professional candidates, that's what they do for a living. And, and, and they start off doing that for a living. I mean, they're very, very policy wonk type uh, people. Uh, what Donald Trump is about to the table is that he's gone into the mix and he has brought his celebrity to the table. And with his celebrity and his style and the way he presents himself, now you have the, you have the nation paying attention to the Republican Party. So you had a chance actually to to listen to Carson, to listen to Bush, you see, or to listen to Scott Walker, and you had a chance to. And we all had a chance to look at other candidates and really get a sense of who they were. When ordinarily you would not be paying attention to them, it's almost as if when you go to um, if you, those folks who like athletics out there, when you if you have if you have a high school kid who's being scouted for uh, for a college sport. And, and the scout goes to, uh, to look at that kid, but then he sees the entire team. He sees other people. He says, you know what? I like that person. I like the, that other uh, uh, yeah. uh, athlete. Right. And, and, that's, and, what, I and do, that's what's occurring. Yeah. yeah and, and, and I do think that um, his tactic of uh, shooting from the hip and saying what he thinks kind of shook up the whole election process. And so I'm going to be very curious to see um, what happens when the cameras get trained on the Democrats and and how are they going to match the energy that is in that on that stage with 11 candidates um, fighting for their um, uh, attention and, and the attention of the voters? Um, the election right now is being defined really by these these Republican candidates but, and, and by this gauntlet that Trump has thrown down. So what happens when you get Hillary and Bernie and who knows whether Biden's <laughs> going to jump in or not and, and um, there's some other guy running whose name I can't even remember <clears throat> who's uh, um, probably a very interesting person, but he just hasn't come to the fore yet. But, um, you know, how is this going to define their process and what they do and, and how do they grab the uh, spotlight and, and get any um, um, real energy going when these guys have just, they've really busted things open. Well, you know, that's exactly why I hear on the street. Uh, individuals will say to me, why is it? They, they will say, well, you know what, Dr. Clark, why is it that, that, the, that the Republicans are getting so much attention? I'm tired of listening to the Republicans. I'm tired of looking at the Republicans. It's because they've scheduled debates. It's because they have these scheduled debates of, with uh, originally 21 some odd candidates, and so and with these national debates and these debates which are being viewed, it brings their attention to the national to the public. Right. On Interesting. The, on the other side of the equation, when you when you look at the Democratic Party, and and you see precisely what uh, what Hillary Clinton was doing, uh, you, you're not going to see any energy at all if it's going to be a coronation. If it's because you don't need energy for coronation, and it has, been, it has been decided that this is not going to be a coronation uh, with the Democratic Party to give uh, Hillary Clinton the nomination. So, therefore, you see um, Bernie Sanders attacking. 
but you, you see perhaps perhaps even uh, Joe Biden may get into the race. Uh, we see individuals now, they get into the, into the race and make it a real dog fight. Then you're going to see that sort of energy. But the downside to all of that is this. If you can recall years ago in Louisiana, uh, where we had, they used to have closed primaries in Louisiana. Yeah. The reason we went to an open primary was because when Governor Elvis suggested, said, wait a minute, um, the, the, the Republicans uh, uh, don't fight amongst themselves and send in one candidate and they defeat the Democratic uh, nominee. And they defeated the Democratic nominee. Why? Because the Democratic nominee will have to go through an arduous fight with other Democrats, divided. And then at the end of the, uh, of the primary, they all hate one another. And they were, <laughs> and they were, not, uh, and they were not able to consolidate their vote because they despise one another. They, the rift will go so deep. And the downside of this is, will the GOP party emerge uh, stronger after all of these debates, or would it be fractured and individuals spit off and even run as independent? And so that's the downside uh, to the Republican uh, discussion. So yeah, I don't really. It could very I don't, well happen as well. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. really see that happening. Uh, uh, actually, I, you know, you know, uh, unless Trump somehow completely loses steam and he he just wants to continue to be in the spotlight and. And, and decides to run as an independent, which, you know, as we all know, all that's going to do is crater support for the Republicans that elect Hillary. So um, <laughs> there's probably some uh, conspiratorial thinkers out there who think that that's, that's actually what's in play. I, I, I don't buy that. But um, in, in, I, I just don't – I don't really see that. And, and um, I think that the value of this debate, as you said, that is dominating the media right now and, and, and bringing all of the Republican candidates and philosophies and ideas to, to the fore is, is more uh, uh, the result of, of what's going on than, than any kind of um, real fragmentation at the end. But who knows? Everything twists and turns. Um, things don't uh, turn out the way they start out um, a lot, and um, uh, things can uh, change dramatically. But um, I, I, I think yeah. you're, you're right to, uh, and, and this is my concern, you know, will there be any energy on the other side? And um, will there be, I guess the energy will come in part uh, when you actually do have the two nominees and they, they go after each other. But, you know, dogfight is one thing, quite frankly, um, I'm with, um, who is it, um, Kasich, I think, was talking a lot about the need for more unity. And he, he who has served in Washington and recalls those days when, you know, the Tip O'Neill on the Democratic side, and I don't remember who his counterpart was on the Republican side, would work together. They might come from very different places, but at the end of the day, they're going to, they're going to, figure out a way to find the compromises and make it work. In countries where you have a real stalemate between the two sides and things get bogged down to where they don't move at all, that's a very dangerous place. And that, I feel, is really the dominant position that this country is in, is, is this stalemate and this need for each side to just posture rather than really look at, okay, what 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 is what is good about Obamacare and what is really specifically wrong with it, and let's let's attack what needs to be fixed rather than just, you know, hang that rock around someone's neck and say, okay, that's that's just bad, you know. That, that, yeah. This whole school of, of um, no compromise that we're in in this country just drives me nuts. 
Right, and you're right. And it's, it, this is a part that pendulum pendulum where we are. And why this election is so important is that whoever wins, because I got Obamacare, yes, it's, it's president there, but uh, the next president will have an, an opportunity to appoint two, uh, and we know at least uh, two Supreme Court justices. And so, and with that, with that, with the appointment of two justices, uh, they much could be written out. They could write out uh, affirmative action and those sort of issues again. They could in the courts. They can also write out Obamacare in the courts because in, in, you know in the American system is is. But Dr. Basically. Clark, yeah. seriously, yeah. you you're a political scientist and and, and you run a, a you know an institute dealing with um, you know uh, the law and 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 public interest. Is it really in the public interest for this to be just slapped down in the courts, or is it more in the, in the public interest for the the people who represent us to get together and and um, fix what we've already done? Right, it is, it is in the public interest. Uh, you know, it's in the public interest to, to maintain the welfare of all Americans. But uh, the, the the nature of the, the, the nature of the system that we live in. Is, is such that, and I tell people this all the time. You know, it, it's, it's a pluralistic battle that we fight, and so what? So whatever you sit at the table, they count. And so whether it's whether it's on the uh, whether it's the, 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 uh, the Supreme Court, whether it's the legislative uh, branch with, the, with Congress or the executive branch, it's a counting game. So you got to make sure that you have the majority in order to, uh, to work in terms of the public interest. Uh, we say this all the time. I say it, uh, law is politics. And so we've got to understand the nature of uh, uh, of the law. What is law now can change in a generation through the politics, and you know, it's especially within this particular system that we have. So we've got to be forever watchful. And, and you're right; it's in the public interest to make to make sure that that the welfare of everyone is maintained, and all citizens, whether it's within the criminal justice system, with, uh, with mass incarceration, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's with health care. To make sure that everyone is provided with equal access to health care at, a, at, a, at an equitable price. And also whether, whether it's in, in, a, in the free enterprise system, to make sure that there is indeed indeed a minimum and a basic standard of living that everyone should be paid. Let's turn, uh, as we close out, I'm, yeah. i got to bring my next guest on, but um, I, I can't resist asking what your perception is about the state race and the governor's election, I mean, you've got some candidates out there. Again, we have some kind of a principled, smart people with experience, and I think their politics are a little confusing. I mean, a, a number of them are former Democrats who are now Republicans because that is kind of the law, to speak about the law in, in, a, in another sense. Uh, that's kind of the political law of the land in the South right now is that you've got to be a Republican to get elected. So you've got some people like Scott Angel and, and – um, uh, Dardan, um, I, I, I'm not sure I understand exactly what their politics are, and and but they're they're going to run some strong races. You've got Bell Edwards, who you know what his politics are, uh, and Vitter, um, and you know kind of uh, very clearly where he stands. Well, how how do you see all this um, going forward? How how does this shake out? And and do we again get past political rhetoric, and do we get to really uh, some kind of more um, uh, uh, bigger thinking about h- how we can uh, lift all boats in Louisiana. Uh, precisely, you know, there are those who uh, who, who believe that the next uh, governor of Louisiana is going to become a one-term governor, uh, and they believe it because uh, because of the hard decisions that have to be made 
because of where we have been over the past eight years. And so, therefore, that, that governor's going to have to make some very difficult decisions, but so that's going to disturb a lot of the uh, a lot of uh, mm. individuals in the state. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when you look at the when you look at the candidates who are in this race um, to date, um, Bitter is the one to beat, which is why everyone's attacking him so hard. But uh, he has he's, he's the individual who uh, who has um, he comes from coming from the U.S. Senate, and he has a lot of power in the Senate. And he also, but now he's running for governor. There are those who say, "Why well, go from the Senate to the governor?" But the governorship of the state of Louisiana is a very, very powerful position to hold and to have, uh, in terms of the appointments, board appointments, all sorts of things that one can do as governor of the state. Uh, you, the key for the black electorate, uh, and the black electorate right now is is wholeheartedly within uh, within the camp, the Democratic camp, and the Democratic nominee is John Bell Ellis. And, and you hear this, I hear Oliver Thomas, I hear all these other people who I know who are friends of mine, and I talk to all the people I know who are political people, and they say this all the time, the political political Democrats who are activists say, have you heard from John Bell Elwood? And then you, and then, uh, and I've even asked people the question, that question as well that I know. And you can, there are those who can say and this anecdotally, that you can look up and you see many of the Republican candidates at black functions, or, or you've heard from them somewhere more so than you have from John Bell Edwards. And so that's a position where, the Democrat, where a black Democrat are. They've got to determine, hey, do, is your vote for granted? This on the state level and on the national level. Is your vote, should your vote be taken for granted? And, and then where should, you, where should you put your vote? So therefore, you have to run individuals. There are those now who believe that perhaps the wrong individuals running for governor on the Democratic side of the equation. There, be, there should be someone else with, with greater influence and greater charisma. And but the person to be still to date is is David Bitter, and that's precisely why you're seeing such hard attacking ads directed toward him. Boy, they are and, tough, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Who's doing and, those ads? I'm 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 just curious. I I don't know enough about it. Well, uh, yeah, those those ads are tough and they're hard, and and and, and that's how they and and that's local politics. And the question why it's very difficult to find individuals who to run for office uh, because. Uh, it's hard. They, they talk about, not only do they talk about you, they talk about your spouse, your loved ones, they talk about what, 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 how bad your kids are in the grocery store. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very difficult to put your name on the ballot whether you're running for a governor or state representative or a councilmatic seat, whatever it may be. That's a real tough decision that individuals have to make, especially in this day of social media. Well, and, but I, yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I, it's going to be interesting. Um, I, I agree with you that uh, we don't necessarily have the um, the strongest um, uh, dynamics in, in some of the people that are running. On, on the other hand, again, um, there's there's certainly some intelligence uh, going uh, for us with some of these candidates, and, and um, hopefully they don't uh, just take those you know party line positions, and they really do kind of go after um, a, a little bit bigger thinking. And, and some of them are capable of doing that. So uh, I hope that that happens because, you know, some of these older um, uh, social value issues, I just think, are, are played out. And, and, Absolutely. And, and uh, me, you've got a lot of young quick. voters out there who don't buy any of that stuff. I'm, I'm amazed at how many. Do you know, here's a little interesting tidbit. I, I work with a lot of young interns in their 20s. and Okay. To, you know, I, and I, they don't read the newspapers, they don't watch television, and um, they listen to radio. Some of them are listening to Be Okay. Some of them are looking at. Um, uh, some of them are are, are um, uh, really just um, 
just kind of, um, I, I would say, not paying attention to what's going on. Uh, but a lot of them are listening to NPR radio. That's right. Which is fascinating to me because I, I really would have thought NPR um, appeals to an older demographic, to more traditional um, people. And um, no, the, the, the kids, that, that, that's what they're – so if you think that the younger generations coming up are, are fixed on these older positions on these issues, I think that the folks who are locked in with that are, are – um, they're going to they're going to basically uh, work themselves out of the political scene eventually, and to some extent, I think what we're going on here, uh, what's going on here, is uh, a rear guard action, is what I call it, um, of trying to hold on to um, a, a, a society, a world, a way of thinking that's kind of gone. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and you look at their campaign tactics as well in terms of how they get elected and how to win power, and uh, yes. It's interesting enough, Bernie Sanders, uh, oldest candidate out there in the race. And guess what? His, most, of, uh, most of his attention comes from young people, and, and they, they have a, he has a very strong and solid uh, social media network out there. And so he, he may be the oldest candidate, but yes, he's using modern technology. Actually, <laughs> Bernie Sanders... People. Bernie Sanders and Trump represent for, uh, to me, and, and even is another um, uh, aspect to this, this race that uh, um, has a, a Brooklyn-centric factor. Here you have a guy from Brooklyn on one end of the political spectrum, a guy from Queens on the, on the other end of the spectrum. They're both real old-time New Yorkers in, in a lot of ways. And, and what, what yeah. I find fascinating about Trump is he's exactly the kind of pushy New Yorker that I thought most people in the country didn't like. I mean, I'm from it's New York, and I'm always trying York. to... He's in your face down politician. In your New face. Yorkers understand that. And then, and then even Hillary... We understand it in New York, excuse me, in Louisiana. Right, I mean, <laughs> you know... So, which is why there's that connection. And in the South, we understand that that sort of political being. Well, and, and, and then add to it that uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign is... Uh, her headquarters is in Brooklyn. And I say, oh, my goodness, it's like... Brooklyn was rolling, <laughs> except that, of course, a lot of the kids that we have coming to New Orleans are, are exiting there because of the rising costs and because it's become such a popular place. Um, Dr. Clark, I uh, have enjoyed this. I look forward to talking with you in the future. Let's check in again as things develop and um, and see uh, see if we can get a, you know, what the new take will be. Um, I think they're talking about the Democratic uh, um, debate starting in um, later in October. Am I, I, I don't remember exactly um, what the date uh, on that is. And it, it couldn't come too soon. I agree with you that debates are really um, driving a lot of the energy. Thank you. And I know you're sitting up there in Washington, so uh, safe travels home. Uh, thank you, my friend. Uh, and thanks for having me as well. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right, folks. So that's all a little political fix for the moment. And I don't, I don't know that I conveyed um, how interesting I really found the whole thing, uh, getting to know each of those candidates. Um, and the, some of the little quirky things, some of the little surprises like Santorum uh, coming out and, and talking a little bit more about social equity issues than one would have expected to hear at a Republican debate. But um, altogether, it was very informative about who all these characters are. But now let's come back to home base, and um, in in a way that's a really appropriate uh, metaphor for something that's happening in our city. Um, many of you have, uh, uh, older and younger, have have been to the 
once and now again beautiful Orpheum Theater right there on Canal Street in part of what some of the visionaries of our city uh, are really trying to claim as a new theater district in in uh, downtown New Orleans, you know, along with the Sanger and um, the Joy Theater and um, a, again, a growing residential population in the immediate vicinity uh, around Canal on both sides, both down river and up river in the CBD. Um, but it was and is now about to again be the home for our own uh, Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. And um, I have with me uh, Sean Snyder, who um, has a very interesting background. He, he's doing communications for the symphony, but I noticed in your resume that you have a pretty strong music background yourself. I do. Um, I started in piano uh, in college, and so I, I went that direction for quite a while, but I learned very quickly that um, I enjoyed the administrative aspect of the, of the arts. So even in college, I was getting involved with a lot of the behind-the-scenes promotion, marketing, communications of concerts, and and uh, so I something is is a niche that I found to be a little more comforting than being on the concert stage, which I also love. But I this is more to me in in the vein of interest. Hmm. So um, you've got um, a, a sort of homecoming to the Sanger, and and tonight. Um, unfortunately, I guess it's well, fortunately for you, but unfortunately for some of the people in the audience who might have uh, wanted to um, uh, enjoy what's going to happen tonight, but it, coming up is another opportunity. So um, uh, tell us about your inaugural moment that's coming up tonight and uh, this weekend. Well, I'll tell you, Jean, I've been in some of the rehearsals we had on Tuesday and again uh, yesterday on Wednesday and, and you know, I was I was fortunate enough to be able to sit in the theater to hear the very first notes that the orchestra played as we, you know, came back home. And it, it it's a moment that brings sort of tears to your eyes if you understand the history of the orchestra and, you know, the history of the city, of what it means to have something like the Orpheum open again, something that's going to really embrace acoustical acoustic music. Um, as much as that space will, you know, and of course the Orpheum and their staff are bringing other forms of music and art and art to the city. Uh, they're we're really creating the space to be a multi-use, uh, multi-purpose venue as well as events. For example, I know the Opera is having their gala event in December, and we will have our gala event there next year. So it's going to be suited for a lot of different uses, but. It's going to be a, a magical, magical moment, and I, we have um, we've actually released some seats that will be available for folks to walk up tonight should they oh, want really? to come oh, uh, and take a chance. Right. Um, but uh, and then Saturday too, we have some as well. And for those listeners who are um, not in the city, we also go up to Covington, and so we'll be there on Friday night um, at the Baptist Church in Covington. That's one of the things that uh, we tend to forget about here in New Orleans, that this is the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, and you do get around the state, and that's also a, a wonderful thing. You know, a lot of people um, do not follow classical music. Um, I'm I'm one of these people who likes it all. I like everything from, you know, Sissy Bounce to... Um, you know, old um, medieval music. I like it all, and it's it, and 
I just find it music is so powerful. And if if you open your ears to a form of music that you're not familiar with, to something that's in in, in uh, we say classical primarily because it is um, kind of taking music to a, a, a bigger uh, um, presentation and um, it, maybe not bigger than a Madonna concert. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Jane, it's, it's you know unfortunate, uh, fortunate and unfortunate that we as humans try to to label so many things. And classical music, I think, gets a a bad rap sometimes because it, it was primarily music that's un unvocalized or music that was from primarily from a specific period of time, which people may not find as interesting any longer. So, um, you know, it's it's. It, it, we we as the orchestra, our job is to make it relevant, and as in I'm sure you and in, in, in what you do, try to make art relevant. And so we that's that's that is the mission in which we find ourselves in today with the orchestra is how how can we take this art form which many see as archaic and un and um, unrelevant to today's times and make it relevant yet again. And 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 one way to do that again is to just um, vary your menu, and mm-hmm. um, so you have a very a varied menu coming up for this whole season, Correct, and yeah. so give me a uh, give me some uh, a little bit of a flavor of the menu. So we flavors the the core of what we do is our classics product, and I, I'm you know we that'll always be our core. So we we offer our full season of cla- classics in New Orleans, and that'll be at the Orpheum Theater. Okay, that aside, we will, we offer um, many different options. For example, in November, November sixth and seventh. We are offering a, a movies night at the Orpheum, where we're going to screen The Wizard of Oz. And uh, what what they've done through the magic of technology is they've extracted all of the music, and the orchestra will provide the soundtrack. Oh, that's right, live stage. music. Sort yeah. of going back to the early days right. of, of films when, in fact, you had live music in, in the uh, auditorium. I love that idea. Yeah. I did that once uh, during a. I did a series called the Do Drop In Jazz Jam. Mm-hmm festival at the Contemporary Arts Center and I had a number of uh, short films from a, uh, that had been shot and I had different musicians play to the films I, right. I, and it's so much fun because it's you don't know what to expect it really no. is fresh right we did it a couple of years ago with Psycho and it, the response was just quite amazing um, and we were able to and Wizard of Oz is such a great show. I know and it's, it's yeah. you know hopefully that will those types of products that we're able to bring will bridge we hope the you know people who are reluctant to try the classical arts into something that's a little more fitting for their their style and taste. Mm-hmm. Which Wizard of Oz production are you using? Which film production? It, it's the original one provided from MGM um, mm-hmm. with Judy Garland. Yeah, when she was a uh, yes, yes, girl. of, of mm-hmm. course. It's, it'll be the original, you know, Technicolor with all of the dialogue, and so it's it's truly like going to see it on the big screen. You'll you know, there's. It's not a silent film with music, so that's got to be a lot of fun. Yeah. What are the dates on that again? Uh, November sixth and seventh. Mm-hmm. And then continuing in that line of thinking, we are offering some different products or shows, such as our um, Orpheum uh, Christmas Spectacular, which will feature the Six Ten Stompers. <laughs> so they've uh, uh, we 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 have worked with the Stompers to to kind of interweave this comical uh, uh, theatrical skit, if you will, with the traditional classic music uh, mm-hmm. of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be a fun, it'll be a fun, great place, great place for the kids to come and funny. I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they do, but it'll no doubt be 
kind of you know what that makes me think would be so much fun to do maybe to consider for next year you can pass this on to your programming people wouldn't it be a kick it would really be amazing to see some of our Mardi Gras Indian and our social aid and pleasure club marchers um, in some kind of a really extravagant Absolutely. presentation with um, orchestral music behind them, because that there is so powerful, right? And um, in in their presentations, and to mix that with uh, you know a big orchestral and such sound a strong behind musical them, musical history. Yeah. There. Yes, yeah. and it'll it would that would really bring full circle to the to the city. I agree. That would be cool. Yeah. Pass that on. Yeah. <laughs> what else you got? And then in in January, um, you know, we kind of continue things in January. In addition to our our classics things, once again, uh, we're bringing um, an artist who is, was a former um, musician that worked with Ray Charles, and he is going to present the music of Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles. Oh, love he, it. He's a blind um, pianist singer who is phenomenal and he, he does this kind of tribute show that mm-hmm. is in the vein of, of Ray Charles and um, we're very excited to have him he's, he's going to present a wonderful evening at the Orpheum and then the, the special seasons end with uh, the music of ABBA um, that'll be in May and you know interwoven in there we continue to have our parks concerts which are always popular in the community in City Park and uh, out in Kenner. And, I love those, yeah. yeah. And people, we always have a great, great turnout. And all of our education offerings um, this year, you know, it's not something people can attend per se, but it, it's kind of a warm and fuzzy to know is that uh, the orchestra has started this program called Soul Strings, which we are working with students from the St. Michael Special School and the Magnolia School. And we're bringing music therapy-informed programs into those places oh, to really yeah. work with um, mm-hmm. adults and children with disabilities mm-hmm. um, to help them uh, you know, cope and respond through music. So those are exciting, exciting programs, and I, you know, something I can't wait for the season to begin. So, what is it about the? Um, give me just let's jump back on the Orpheum story because sure. I've always heard that the acoustics of the Orpheum are super fabulous. Mm-hmm. Why? What? What's the history? Well, the Orpheum it it, it was built in the nineteen um, teens around the World War One era. It was built as a vaudeville house, and and actually, in the uh, original, uh, you know, I was surprised to go down in the basement where they still had the seal tank for the theater, where <laughs> they would actually have live seals in this tank, and they would use that in in the performances in the show. In the oh show. My gosh. Uh, it was still there, um, and so you know, it was it was a house it was a house created to have this variety appeal. Um, you know, of course, that was almost at the cusp of the movie era. So when that kind of fizzled out, they conformed it into a movie theater. And it remained a movie theater for, for decades. And then um, through through all this time and, and the Depression in the 50s, it, 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 went, it took on several iterisms, and, and it, it morphed into all these different things. Finally, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was renovated to become a symphony hall. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was really in that renovation that the acoustics was 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 brought to the level, or or was know, that there before? Not really. You know, they when they the original uh, building was built, and I don't know if they just got lucky. Uh, I, I hope they would have put some thought into it that the acoustics were just you know phenomenal from the start, and um, you know I guess it just never really dawned on them or anybody in the city prior to. 1970-something, that this may be a good space for the symphony orchestra. 
I, I, it seems to me, and, and, you know, the history of how things start up always get um, sort of lost uh, it, as, as time goes on. But um, I think it was Jimmy Coleman Sr. who uh, was maybe um, chairman of the board of the orchestra at the time or something. I think he was one of the people, <clears throat> I'm sure there were many others, mm-hmm. um, who had the passion for turning the theater into a home for the orchestra. Right. It was it was empty yeah. for quite a while. Yeah, and as I said, you know that the the history has a the stor- the theater has a storied history of closings. <laughs> I hope that's not a trend, but um, you know the, it it stayed open for a while and something would happen. And in the early '80s, they did again. Somebody bought it, renovated it. Um, I, as I understand it, I never personally saw it, but they they kind of did a kind of a, a renovation where they put a lot of dry roll up, and so they really took a lot of the character out of the space. Mm. Um, but in the most recent, when the um, von Kernatowskis and Dr. George took over um, and bought the space, they, you know, I think the. The, the theater was part of the National Registry at that point, and so they had to do a historic renovation. They had to work with the people down in D.C. and get lots of approvals and permits, and so they tore all of that old stuff out, and they refurbished the original terracotta in the lobby, for example, and you know all around the building. And um, folks who, who come and visit with us will be able to see firsthand all the, the beauty that it has. But Von Tarnikowski is such a music lover. Yes. And so I'm sure that um, even if they didn't have the requirement that it be uh, brought back uh, historic, uh, to be historically correct, that he would have made sure that the acoustics are right. Yeah, Roland and Mary have been a strong supporter of us for a while. You know, the Tipitinas, you know, they they are instrumental in the Tipitinas Foundation Mm -hmm. as well as the nightclub. you know, and through them, they we acquired some instruments. They did a donation of percussion instruments like two years ago, mm-hmm. and so they they've always been really instrumental in the music in this city mm-hmm. and, and wanting sure to see have. it thrive. They yeah. sure have. So, um, how does the orchestra here in Louisiana? I don't want to say rank, hmm. but how would you describe our positioning nationally? Right. I mean, how are we viewed? Um, you know, uh, uh, the music of New Orleans is, of course, viewed internationally, globally, as as seminal and 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 really important in 20th century music. In so many ways, it's influenced everything, including classical music. When right. you think about the music of Gershwin, for example, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so many others, it, the 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 music, the indigenous music of of New Orleans, um, is is a, a central force, but. What about our orchestra? How do how 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 are we viewed? What what is unique about it? What is special about it? You know, why should people think that the that the um, LPO here is something that we should go here? So I have sort of two answers to that question. One is that you know, from a national perspective, there are you know orchestras that have a very strong history. For example the Cleveland Orchestra or the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. They are, they have been staples in this country, much less in their commu- own communities. Um, we don't necessarily have that, you know, and um, that doesn't mean we're any less or, or of a musical musicality standpoint. I mean, we are very, very respected in our um, national ranks for the musicality of our programs. 
Um, a lot of musicians, and I say this anecdotally, but from my own interviews, a lot of musicians choose to come to the LPO hmm. that are out of uh, either conservatory or whatever program they're finishing mm-hmm. early on in their career. You know, all of our musicians are conservatory trained. They're, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, so you're getting some of the young stars, right. the young bright stars. Exactly, and they're energetic. Mm-hmm. They're energetic. They're really ready to go, go getters, and, and they're interested in learning about marketing, for example, or mm-hmm. they're interested in knowing what's trending in in the world right now. How do we get our message out there? Um, that's what really makes us unique, in my perspective, is that we have this core, these core of musicians who for lack of better words, had to reorganize in the early 90s. They had to start this orchestra from the ground up again. Um, And that really said, hey, we have to take initiative here. We have to to position ourselves in this organization so that, we one, we know what's going on, and, two, we have to take an active approach to its management. And so that in itself makes us very... um, respected in the community because there's no or- other organization that's been able to pull that off um, here for a long period of time. There are several who have tried. but And you've had uh, nationally, we've lost right. a lot of orchestras in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. And it, and even though, again, our, our, our primary music form in New Orleans really is, is, is our indigenous yes, music that comes up in the streets and the homes of a uh, and and develops from the, the social aid and pleasure clubs and and the and the Indians and and all the small bands that come together. Um, yet uh, the the orchestra has has kept alive. Mm-hmm. And really, the turning point at one when it looked really scary was the orchestra itself. Mm. It said no. It it, it was almost. I, I just realized this analogy, you know, I talk a lot on this program, and we talked a lot about this during the 10th anniversary, how the city was saved by the neighborhoods, mm. by people in the mm. neighborhoods, not by, you know, yes, we got a lot of money uh, from the national government and, and from the state to help us rebuild, but without the energy coming from every household in New Orleans that, that said, I'm coming home, mm. I want to be home, mm. uh, we wouldn't be here. And the same thing with the orchestra. Yeah. The, the members of the orchestra, when it looked like you might fold your tent, this was, I forget exactly when that was. It was 91, the 91, 92 okay. era. You know, and it's, you, that's a great point, Gene, that you bring up. You know, it's, it's something that is ingrained in the fabric of every New Orleanian is just not to give up. If, if something from, if large entities, you know, fail us, we're, we are going to pull ourselves up by the by our bootstraps and really make it work. And the orchestra has had to do that almost twice. Um, you know, we entered into some really bleak times with Katrina, as as did any, all of us. And um, they really pulled together with, you know, with the help of some national organizations, but it was not with much government help. It was with the musicians and what staff we had left um, to pull ourselves up and say, you know what, We're it's going to be going. the music that brings this community back. And mm-hmm. when this mu- community does come back, we need our music. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. Well, I, and I am um, a, a big fan of seeing the orchestra um, and the opera here work more um, with our vernacular uh, music forms and look to create original work that um, marries 
the the traditions of classical music with what's going on today. I attended um, an opera up at Loyola over the uh, weekend Right. that I had uh, the folks who were putting that together on my show last week because I did an opera, very iconoclastic, very different. It's really more spoken word, dance, music, and it was avant-garde jazz, mm. really. So it was a different thing about the Ninth Ward coming back. And so their opera that they put on was about a family coming together. And it was the, it was a story that you heard so much. Um, the son had left town to go to New York to be a musician, in fact, yeah. a jazz musician. And um, his dad refused to leave his house for the storm. And then they couldn't find each other for a long time. And so there was this very uh, personal, uh, I'm breaking the rule here of having not <laughs> turned off my phone. Sorry, everybody. But um, this, uh, the, the performance was, was extraordinary with some major international talent on the one hand. And um, the young players from New Orleans, young yeah. uh, and also from Dallas, mm. and uh, to listen to this young talent was just phenomenal. And in, again, a very contemporary music score by a young uh, woman who um, is not one of your, uh, you know, she's no Bach, Beethoven. Um, she's she's one of the newer contemporary musicians. Sure. I would love to see more of that. I, I would really just yeah. love to see um, some of the different art uh, forms in the city come together and right. work with the symphony. Right, and it's one thing I love about I've been with the orchestra four years now, and I, I feel like during those four years we've really gone out of our way to think outside of the box, no pun intended, of of of, of um, you know the the capacity of what we can do. And I think you present a great example of things that in this city that can be done, and it just takes a little bit of willpower and probably a lot of money. But, uh, and some grants, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot but of development work. This is definitely not outside that. the realm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm excited. By, by the way, just a, a closing note on you. Um, so you're not from here originally, I take it? No, I, I'm I, – well, I'm – from Baton Rouge, close okay, enough to right, town, I okay. think. You're Louisiana, <laughs> yes, all right. Of course. I thought you might have been uh, from uh, further away, but um, I'm I'm glad you've uh, settled here in New Orleans. What part of town are you living in? Well, I'm I'm actually a transplant up in Madisonville. Oh, so you come back and forth. I do. Yes. Well, uh, you know, well, power to you. That's right. That's, That's what a, everybody again, tells me. <laughs> your commitment to the uh, symphony and to the city. That's right. Appreciate it. And so, uh, one more time now. On uh, tonight, there might be a few seats available. Yeah. And this is Mahler's, Mahler's Resurre- resurrection. Uh-huh. We are resurrecting the Orpheum, and Very. it is. It is. If you're wanting to come, shed a couple of tears. It's going to be a very moving experience. Um, Full orchestra, there's about 90 musicians, 90-plus musicians on the stage, which is almost a feat to see on its own. But a full 100-plus voice chorus, it's going to be good. God, yeah. So and it's, tonight, it's a beautiful tonight work and Saturday. Of, work of music. And Saturday night also, so yes. if you can't come out. And what time? 7.30, both 7.30 nights. at the Orpheum. Some tickets at the door. Yep. Prices? $20, and they go <gasps> up from all. there. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That's not And if at all. there are any students, you shouldn't be any students listening, but if you are, um, $10 student tickets. Excellent. Well, I hope it's a blast. I hope it's a fabulous night. Um, I, I wish you a great season. And listen, everybody, give it a try. If you've never been to a performance of the orchestra, you'd be amazed how moving and beautiful it is. And it'll, it'll add to your cultural vocabulary. This is Jean Nathan. It's Cross Town Conversations, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>